Well, good morning, Life Community Church. How's everybody? Good. My name is uh, Winston. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the worship pastor here. And, uh, and this is my second time speaking here at Life Community, so that's exciting. However, however, last time I spoke, Tim gave me the, uh, the passage of um, the prodigal son. Pretty, uh, pretty easy, well, technically easy message, pretty familiar. Uh, this time, however, I have overestimated his graciousness and I have received uh, the message about Jesus' authority and him flipping over tables. So this should be uh, a whole lot of fun. I mean, I even, I even bragged about his barbecue last time, and then he gives me this kind of message, man. So um, please be gracious with me as we, uh, we endeavor to talk about Jesus' authority. And um, okay, raise your hand if you love being told what to do. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> okay, okay, maybe you do. Sorry, I didn't mean... <laughs> but really, okay, well, to me, okay, maybe some people do. That's, that's totally fine. But to me, I, I don't like being told to do. I don't like being controlled. I don't like the word authority specifically. It just, it brings up images of negativity, ruling with an iron fist. Uh, authority makes me think of uh, punishment, and um, it's just this, honestly, it's a difficult word for me to really like. Um, and so uh, if, you, if you'll talk to John, Pastor John or Jason or Tim, they will all confirm that, uh, yes, Winston struggled with this word and struggled with uh, this, uh, preparing this message uh, specifically because of this word authority. And so uh, to resolve this tension in my mind, I, I figured maybe I'll just look up the definition of authority, and maybe that will help me out in, uh, in, in, uh, in talking about Jesus' authority. So uh, the word authority means, I looked it up, I Googled it, the word authority means the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. Enforce obedience is not, sound, it's not sounding good for me. Um, number two, there's a second definition. A person or organization having power or control in a particular, typically political administrative sphere. Power or control over, like, honestly, okay, it was Father's Day, okay, a few weeks ago, right? How many of you uh, would write to your father, Dad, love you. Thank you so much. You're such a great authoritarian dad. It's not a compliment. The word authority has no positivity in my mind. And so honestly, if I can be super honest with you guys, it's really, it was really difficult matching Jesus and authority together. For me, it was. Because to me, authority, like I've just explained, was this, it's this difficult word, this uncomfortable word. I don't being, uh, I don't like being, what's that word? Uh, I don't like anyone enforcing my obedience or controlling me to do something. But then I think of Jesus, and I think of, uh, honestly, I think of God, which is odd, but, but I think of God to me is, is uh, I mean, he's with me when I pray. He's, he's brought me through these difficult times. He's my comforter. He's my counselor. He's consistent with me. And so for me, blending authority and Jesus together is personally a really difficult thing. And, uh, and I don't know if it was because of my understanding of the word authority 
or if it was because of uh, maybe my just stubbornness or hard-headedness, but there uh, was a very specific time in my life that I remember uh, that I questioned the authority of God. I, uh, I actually rejected the authority of God. Um, this was, um, I had just graduated high school. I was born and raised in Louisiana, and how many of you know how hot and humid it is in Louisiana? Specifically during the summers, yes. Uh, it is a really difficult place to uh, work outside. Um, mosquitoes the size of your face everywhere all the time. Um, and, uh, and so I just graduated high school, and I was working uh, as a brick laborer. Um, in the uh, Louisiana heat, and um, uh, this uh, brick company was actually owned by uh, my pastor at the time, uh, the pastor of the uh, Lake Charles Vineyard in Louisiana, Pastor Kelly, and uh, he had hired me on to make a little bit of extra money, and he actually approached me one day saying, uh, hey, what do you think about being the youth pastor? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Getting out of this Louisiana heat, that would be great. I would love to be the youth pastor. Um, and, uh, and so I actually told him, I didn't agree right then and there, I told him that I would uh, go home and pray about it. Uh, because honestly, out of all the youth pastors in my life, uh, many of which I respected, they were all like twice my age. And so this was a, a very serious thing for me that, uh, that my pastor would be offering me a youth pastor job. And so, uh, so I did. I went home, and I prayed about it. And, um, and uh, you know, remember that Jesus that I, that I described before, the one who's, like, always with me, consistent. I feel like he's happy to see me. I'm like, Jesus, can you believe my pastor offered me the youth pastor positions? It's going to be so great. What do you think about it? And clear as day, it was a no. I, I, can't, I can't describe how exactly... I don't, some, most of you hear from the Lord, and you know his voice. You know when it's a no. You know when it's a yes. And in this moment, man, I knew it was a no. And, uh, and I, I just couldn't shake that. But I was just so excited that uh, I was like, well, maybe it's not a no. Maybe. I, I just didn't know what to do, it, so I just set it aside. And uh, the next day or a few days after, uh, I uh, went up to Pastor Kelly and kind of talked to him. And he talked to me more about it, and he actually said that this wasn't uh, a youth pastor, pastor, pastor position. It was more of an internship. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that makes it easier to say yes, God, because I prayed about the youth pastor position, and God said no about that. So I could take the youth internship position, and uh, so I didn't pray about that one because I was afraid of what he say, because um, <laughs> um, I just didn't want to work out in the heat. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and and honestly, uh, so so I took the took this position. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was great because day one, I didn't realize this, but it was a paid youth internship position. <laughs> no big deal. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so, um, uh, so like a few months in, uh, my old youth pastor was the guy interning me, teaching me how to do all the youth pastor duties. And, uh, and he actually switched careers a few months in. Now, this is a small church that I was working at, and it was uh, my old youth pastor was on staff. I was now on staff, and there was a church manager on staff, and that was it. And after he left, it was just me and the church manager. The pastor uh, didn't take an income from the church because he had his own brick company. And uh, uh, so I was immediately left um, as you know, in the, <laughs> the, the, the curious cloud of the guy, the youth guy, uh, you know, my title was all over the place. But, um, like, 
even though God had said no, I feel like I justified it in myself because, okay, look, this guy just stepped down from youth ministry. These kids have to have a youth pastor. I mean, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm like working at a church. These are, these are good things. And, uh, and for four years, I'd played that game in my head. For four years, um, and, and in all honesty, and for four years, I felt totally disobedient to God. I knew he said no, and, and I did the other thing. And I just felt disobedient. I felt like I, um, I don't know, I felt like I missed it. And I, and I think the thing that I, I really learned from that is it's possible to do a really good thing and still ignore God in the process of it all. It's possible to work in a church and to um, you know, be the youth pastor of kids who don't have a youth pastor and still miss it. And so, uh, and, and I think to me, that's a, that's a big issue for me. The fact that we can love God and pursue God, but still, in that moment, be able to reject him because, of we, because we know what he's actually telling us to do. And so how do we prevent this? How do we keep this from happening in the first place? And uh, before we uh, dive into the text today, um, and see what God really has to say about this, um, I would just love to, uh, to pray <laughs> before we start. So uh, God, thank you so much. Holy Spirit, would you uh, make us aware of your presence here in the room, God? God, we want to be people who, um, who know your voice, who follow you. God, when you speak to us, God, would it... Uh, we know it when we hear you, Lord. Amen. So, uh, so if you have your Bibles, we will be in Luke 19, verse 45. And this is, uh, uh, so a little backstory about what's happened. Last week, Jason um, talked about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And uh, that, that piece of text left off with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because uh, it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet was sent to Jerusalem. And every time they ignored the prophets, they ignored the word that God had for them, the warnings that these prophets had. And it moved Jesus so deeply because what do you do? You can only tell a people so many times about the warning coming or change your ways. Put God first, and they don't. What's left? And so this moves Jesus to tears, and this, I believe, is what propels him into the next few sections of Scripture. So um, Isaiah, excuse me, Luke 19.45 reads, And he entered the temple and began to draw... Uh, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus comes in and takes over this temple area. So in the temple in that day, it's believed that this occurred in the court of the Gentiles, which is about this like 35 acre, really large area. This is the place where non-Jews, this is the closest that non-Jews could get to the temple proper, where uh, Jews could enter and worship and pray. And uh, it's in this court of the Gentiles, this outer court of the Gentiles that 
Jesus is walking in expecting people to, to, to be praying and to be seeking God, but instead he finds uh, Matthew and Mark add the detail that he, that he finds it to be almost like a marketplace. They add the detail that he flips over the tables of the money changers, doves are flying everywhere. John adds the details that he makes a whip. I mean, that'll get your attention, right? This is serious to him. Another detail that I found was interesting I didn't know before uh, Mark actually adds this detail that he wouldn't even allow people to carry anything. So it's this large place where, um, where money was being exchanged for the temple tax. There's a, there's a, a temple tax that would be paid, and the temple would only sec- accept one kind of uh, currency. All these animals were being sold for people to, uh, to make sacrifices because this is a long journey to Jerusalem. You raise up this lamb, this perfect lamb, to be, to, be, uh, to be sacrificed as a sin offering. You make it all the way almost to Jerusalem, and then a wolf attacks it and bites its ear off, and you have to go all the way back to get another lamb. So really, honestly, out of convenience, selling animals like this was, um, was really out of, out of convenience, and it's a good thing. But the problem that Jesus had with it was the area that, that it was being held in. This is a place of prayer. And it's really difficult to understand what this is like today. Uh, let me preface this by saying I'm definitely not a scholar, but I'm going to take my best whack at trying to describe what this would be like today. <clears throat> so imagine Jesus walking into this area, <clears throat> expecting it to be a house of prayer, like he says, <clears throat> a house of prayer a solemn place, maybe it's quiet, maybe um, people are kneeling here and there. This is the image he expects to see. Instead, he walks in, and it's like, a super, it's like Walmart. He walks into Walmart, and he's like, what in the world? He, so it infuriates him because he expects this to be a place of prayer. He probably pushes over the aisles and knocks over the displays, and, and everybody has, like, I don't know, godly things in their cart, like Easter eggs, like godly Easter eggs and their godly chocolate bunnies. And uh, Jesus is not having it. It was like, but we're doing it for you. Well, not you. They didn't know. They're doing it for God. And Jesus totally undoes the system that's set up, knocking over aisles, making a scene. And I think what we learn from this moment in Jesus' life and the situation that he's in is that he is making the definite statement that I am here to take over. I am here to make things right because it is not right. I'm here to make things right. I am the authority here. And so imagine if he's in this superstore kind of setting, who would really get upset? Managers. The managers of the superstore would get really upset that Jesus was knocking over all their nice displays. So verse 47 continues, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men uh, of the people were seeking to destroy him, the managers. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Okay, so this guy, so just imagine all these, the chief priests and the elders, the managers. Okay, this guy has just really messed up our store. He knocked down, they're having a huddle, right? He just knocked down all of our aisles and all of our displays. Gary, you spent a lot of time on that display, stacking all the, the cans really, neat, and he just destroyed it. And so what do we do? And so there's this, uh, this detail here in verse 48, but he couldn't find anything to do for the people who were hanging on his words. People loved it. People loved Jesus, loved what he had to say. And so they thought to themselves, it's actually a pretty genius move, I think. They thought to themselves, okay, well, what if we just question his authority? What if we question his right to do this in our store? 
That way he gets embarrassed in front of his friends and then uh, you know, all the people hanging on his words and then we won't have to deal with him anymore. He probably won't have an answer. I mean, he doesn't have the authority to do this, obviously. So he'll probably just get up and leave and it'll be totally fine. So continuing in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse one. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So basically they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mr. Uh, son of a carpenter, is it? Okay. Who gave you the authority to come in here and knock down all of our neat aisles and our displays? What gives you the right? Quit messing with our stuff. Why don't you go ahead and tell us? Why did you do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? And, uh, and Jesus says, he answered them. I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, another manager huddle. Let's see. Okay, he just asked us this question. What do we say? And they discussed it among one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? John, in his own words, is the one who looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we definitely can't agree that John was in any way justified because it would say that Jesus is justified. So we can't say that. But if we say for man, all the people will stone us to death, golly, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, and they said that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, how frustrating would that be? This wayward customer, <laughs> for the lack of a better word, comes into your store, wreck shop, and then puts you in your place. They probably needed another huddle after this <laughs> to regain their composure. How frustrating to, to try and trap someone who has obviously done something wrong in your eyes. I mean, this is the temple of God. They have been doing this for years and years and years and years. And the money that he just spilled all over the place was for God. The animals that he just sent flying all over the place, those were for God. In their minds, this was a good thing. That Jesus has come and just totally messed up. You know, um, many of you maybe, myself included, I look at this story about how they will... Um, they answered him they didn't know. And I just think it was a cowardly thing, right? What cowards that these guys would do this. What a, what a, like, a, a cheap move to move out of the way and to avoid the question altogether because they were more afraid of the people, it says, than the authority of God. And I think it's so easy to identify with that 2,000 years ago and say there's no way that that happens now. There's no way that people are afraid of people more than the authority of God. But then I look at my own life, and I think, how many times have I ignored what I know to be true, what I know is the right thing to do, and I totally ignore it because I'm embarrassed, it's too expensive, or I'm worried, or... God asked me to do something, and it's like, I, okay, if I do this, I will definitely not fit in with any of my friends ever again, so I'm definitely not going to do that. I think it's a common feeling, but it's exactly what these managers are doing. It's the same thing. So just like in my youth pastor story, right, I, I 
Um, I'm so excited. I mean, I'm 18, about to be offered this youth pastor job. I'm like, man, my friends are going to look up to me. Like, what a mark of success in my life. And these, I mean, these kids don't have a youth pastor. So obviously, I'm going to step in and help. And I can't help but wonder how many times have I missed out on what Jesus was offering me or asking me to do while he was standing right there. But because of my own preference, my hard-headedness, my uh, non-willingness to be uncomfortable, I miss the opportunities right in front of me. And like the Pharisees, I reject the authority and miss out on what Jesus offers me. So continuing on in this uh, in this story, it's in the same, this very, the very same moment, <clears throat> the people are still gathered around Jesus, the, the managers are maybe still in their huddle or something, <clears throat> right off to the side. And it says, verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. So parables in this, uh, in this and throughout Jesus' ministry, basically a parable was a story with a point at the end. And, uh, and another thing that parables were, um, were really meant to conceal or disguise truth from people who did, really didn't have a kingdom mindset, if you will. So people like the religious leaders, these parables were actually uh, given to hide truth or disguise truth from them so that people like the disciples sometimes or others who are really seeking God could understand these stories and understand these parables I mean, even though there's a few times he just had to explain the parables uh, to his disciples, and uh, there's still a few that we don't understand. But um, what makes this parable that Jesus is about to tell extremely unique is how blatantly obvious all the details, everything in the parable, how blatantly obvious um, everything really is. It's super clear what this parable means and who this parable is directed at. And And I think one thing, that, um, that I really notice um, about Jesus in this moment is his fearlessness. You know, this is um, Passion Week. Jesus understands that he is on the way to the cross at this point. He knows that he only has a few days left. And of all the times to tell an extra obvious parable to the people who will probably kill you, it definitely wouldn't be now. But for Jesus, it is. He's stepping into this, this moment in his life the road to the cross, and I think he realizes, after I tell, tell this parable, my, 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 my fate is sealed. After I tell this parable, that's it. This is the point of no return for me after I give this story. And so he, he tells the story. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came... Uh, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet another, and he sent yet a third. And I just imagine the, the crowd being like, what? Why do you send another one? He just, they just beat the other two servants, are you serious? So I just, I imagine them leaning in and engaging, like, where is he going with this? This one also they wounded and cast out. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? And I imagine in this moment, the crowd answers, get some more tenants. Send an army, get rid of them, and get better tenants. Instead, to the surprise of everyone, he sends, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And I just, can you see the expressions on their faces? Like, no, they won't respect him. The disbelief in all their eyes. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So again, this has to be one of the most obvious parables in all of Jesus's ministry. I think many of you who were, uh, grew up in church could probably help me out with this. So the owner, who is the owner? Do we know? God, yeah. Uh, vineyard, what are the vineyard? Does anybody know what the vineyard represents? Israel. Very good, nice, smart people in here. And the fruit of Israel representing their obedience. And the servants being sent by God to Israel to reap fruit of obedience of these prophets that have been sent over and over and over and over again. Jesus is telling the same story that was in his mind right before he entered into the temple and trashed all the aisles. I have sent servant after servant after servant to you over many hundreds and thousands of years, and you haven't listened. And it breaks my heart, and I tell you this story in a parable to be extremely obvious what's about to happen next. The son, Jesus himself. And I imagine in this moment as he tells the story, he probably looks to the managers. The managers of the temple have kind of caught on at this point. They know what this parable is about. And he says, God sends his son. And they throw him out and they kill him. What's left for God to do? But to get rid of the managers and give the vineyard to others. And the verse continues. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priest sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable about them, but they feared the people. So I think uh, the reason why Jesus hears his like the door, like, on, like <laughs> he is on the way to the cross in his own mind and he sees it and he knows it. The moment he says, I'm the son, God has rejected you, I, I believe he hears the door behind him shut. Because he forces these religious leaders into a corner. And that corner is two choices. One, they can accept Jesus's authority, accept that he is the son of God, accept that he is who he says he is, and they just give it over to him. They let him run it, or they get rid of him, or they kill him. And I think all Jesus is saying in this moment 
is I, <laughs> I am the good authority. I am the foundation that you can build your life upon. See, when he says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he takes this idea of a vineyard and he switches it just a little bit into the idea of a building. Saying that in the same way that you have rejected the sun, you have rejected the most important piece of this building, the cornerstone. And there's this brilliant, brilliant uh, prophecy in here You've rejected the stone, but it comes back as this cornerstone, this foundation. Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, 2 makes it really clear, saying, as you come to him, a living stone, speaking about Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, like the managers, like the the Pharisees, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. These guys had Jesus right in front of them. They didn't understand it, and it destroyed (laughs) their life. It destroyed all their neat aisles, everything that they had set up, all the things that they were doing for God, Jesus destroyed. And I just want to take a moment and say, you know, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, first, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for being here. And secondly, the beauty, I think, I think a lot of people, a lot of non-Christians that I meet talk about how uh, they respect Jesus as a man and, and, uh, and he, had, he was a great teacher and I would totally agree with you. But the true beauty of Jesus is found in building your life on him. The true <laughs> magnificence of who he is is found on trusting in Jesus. Peter adds the detail. They stumble, these Pharisees, they stumble because they disobey the word of God. And although it's like incredibly good news that Peter is spelling out for us that this stone that the builders rejected, but to those who believe it's this beautiful, precious stone, it's this good thing, it's this foundation to build our life upon, I'm not ignorant to the fact that in daily life, um, maybe for some of you in the room who are holier, in weekly life, rejection of Jesus is alive and well in the same way that these guys rejected him. And they had them right in front of them. You and I, we study the scriptures. We come to church. We know just Jesus really, really well. And we do the same thing. Not unto salvation, right? Not, not unto trusting our lives in Jesus. But in missing out in kingdom activity. I think some of us maybe find our Christian lives boring at times. And I wonder if it's because we reject the activities that he has for us. We don't, we don't pray for that person we feel like we should pray for, or we just pick other things over him. What areas of your life is the house that is built on top of the foundation? What areas of your life is there no foundation under the house? 
what areas of your life aren't being built on this foundation of Jesus. And I think my question is, simply, are we going to reject Jesus in our lives? To continue the story of this, uh, the, you know, me as a youth pastor, because of the situation in my life, I, uh, I had uh, really come to love the authority of God. Um, after four years of being really disobedient, I, I, um, I came to really value um, what it means to listen and to obey God because I did not want to spend another four years of my life feeling like I was disobedient or feeling like I was missing it. And so the idea of God's authority became a little bit easier for me to understand and to welcome in my life. And, uh, and I remember one, one, uh, one, one day I was just uh, really, um, I guess it just kind of all piled up sort of in one day. You know how you have those days where just everything goes wrong or it's just too heavy. And uh, I just sort of buckled under the weight of that. And I was like, God, I, four years ago you told me no, and I'm still doing it. And I feel it's so disobedient. I feel like I've rejected you. And uh, I don't know how to explain it, but uh, it was very clear that he spoke to me, work in my vineyard one more year. And there are two things that came to mind. One, yes, I have an opportunity to be obedient in this next season of life. I can do this for one more year. And then, but then another thing came to mind. I don't know if you, uh, you know the story of Jacob and Laban or not, but uh, Laban is Jacob's father-in-law. Jacob wants to marry one of Laban's daughters, and Laban's like, sure, work in my vineyard for seven years. You can have her. (laughs) Works in his vineyard for seven years, gets the wrong daughter, has to work another seven years for the daughter he really wants to marry. And uh, and as I was, um, as I was, God told me to work in his vineyard for one more year, so that story came to mind, and God stopped me in my thoughts and said, he's a better father than Laban that I could know that, that God would be trustworthy with me, that God's authority in my life was not this, um, this, this, uh, this, this power-hungry God, but truly it was, it was worth it. It was truly worth it. He's a better father than Laban. It's, it's, it's worth it to build my life on the foundation of Jesus. And Tim, why don't you go ahead and come up? You know, uh, what I really want us to do is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is how we want to close this is just singing together. And we're going to sing that song about um, building our life on the foundation of Jesus. Because, man, this is, a, this is a serious thing. I mean, it's so easy to think of these, these Pharisees as long ago, and yeah, they rejected Jesus. but I think it's still true today that we do the same thing. I do the same thing. And I wonder what are we missing out on in our life, in each moment, when we reject him. It's worth it to build your life on the foundation of Jesus. Now, it may not feel good to submit every area of your life to Jesus, like me, I wonder if I would have just obeyed. <laughs> Honestly, okay, this is the truth. If I would have obeyed Jesus and not taken the youth pastor position, I would have been laying bricks in the sun. <laughs> so sometimes in life, obedience to Jesus will not be comfortable. It will not be easy. You may feel lost. 
because he might just give you the first step. <laughs> but I think the truth of, his all, of it all is, is it's worth it. It's worth it to build your life on him and to follow him with all your heart. So why don't you guys go ahead and stand up with me and we'll, we'll sing this song together. And as we sing it, what I would really love for you to do is to take an honest look with me at areas in your life where or not, that they're not built on the foundation of Jesus. Take a serious look at your life and look for the places that you're, you might be missing him. And I could list some, some specific areas to get your mind going, but really what I would rather you do is just pray and ask him to show you what those areas are. God, show me what are the areas in my life that I've kept from you. Show me the areas of your life, of my life that are not built on you. Show me the areas of my life that you're not welcome in. Jesus loves you guys. He'll answer that one. Because he knows that the wall between you and him, the distance between you and him are those areas. <laughs> so Tim's gonna go ahead and sing. I invite you to have a moment with him. Pray. God, I pray that you would help us put our trust in you, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us not reject you like they did then and like we do now. Oh, God, I pray that you would give us the strength to see what you're doing and see where you're active and to totally accept you just as you are, to follow you with courage, to accept you gladly in each moment. God, I pray that we would be a people who would build our lives on you, God. God, I pray for your blessing on each person here, each family, God, junction as a whole, that we would be a community of, of people passionately following you, foolishly following you, like kids following their dad around. God, would you stir in us a, a desire for devotion toward you? be totally consumed by you and who you are. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we've rejected you, for the times where we've blatantly ignored you for the sake of our own comfort. God, would you forgive us? God, would you help us be more like you and to follow you the rest of our lives, God. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for listening. I pray you have a good week. Um, if, if, uh, if any of you guys need prayer, if, if as you guys were praying, areas in your life came up that you realized that, that uh, weren't totally devoted to him, I invite you to come and get prayer. I invite the ministry team up. I'll be over here, and, and uh, a few other pastors on our staff will be up here. But uh, but uh, come, get, come get prayer if you need it. Otherwise, you guys, enjoy your week. Love y'all so much. Have a good one. Bye.